Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church. And if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 15, verses 9 through 27, because this message is entitled, Chain Reaction. Have you ever been punished for something you didn't do? I'm sure you have. We all have, in a way, right? One morning when I was in eighth grade, we were standing around outside the locker room waiting for Coach to come and lock the door for us, and one of the other guys yells out, Guys, look out! Coach is coming! We were just standing around, not really doing anything. We're just kind of looking around, waiting on the coach. And so the coach ran around the corner and yelled out, okay, I don't know what you were up to that needs a heads up that the coach is coming, but I don't really care. Everybody get down into push-up position. We were so mad at that guy because we were being punished when nobody was doing anything to deserve it. One of my best friends was getting married and he sent out invitations that said, old Chinese proverb, beat your wife every morning. If you don't know what it's for, she probably does. And although it made me laugh when I read it, it's not necessarily something I would recommend, especially for for newlyweds. So I recently listened to a podcast called How Stuff Works, and uh, it's where the hosts talk about how certain things work. The podcast I listened to, uh, it talked about the procedure that detectives often use on on, uh, getting a confession out of alleged criminals. Now, uh, they talked about how some detectives decide on a hunch whether or not a person is guilty before they interrogate them and they have ways to get the suspects to confess whether they did it or not and while we might argue that this is infrequent these hosts made a pretty good case for how this happens more frequently than we might think but when you hear about things like that you might wonder as i did why would a person admit guilt when they didn't commit the crime but the tactics that these detectives use are they're psychological and they're designed to make the criminal or the alleged criminal turn on themselves now, I know I'm the type of person who admit to something, you know, that, that I didn't do. Uh, because whenever I was a kid, I confessed to stealing money out of my mom's purse when I was innocent. You see, my dad had this unique and dysfunctional way of, of punishing us when he didn't know who did it. We're all going to suffer. And when you're being yelled at, you're being punished, or you're being guilted, you might just say anything to make it stop. Our justice system is not perfect. Because we're not perfect. Sometimes innocent people suffer. In March of this year, a man named Richard Phillips was exonerated after serving 45 years in prison in Detroit. In 1971, he went to prison for being convicted of murder in the first degree when an eyewitness of the crime confessed that he finally he finally confessed that he lied about it whenever he lied about his testimony when he was on his deathbed. Phillips' kids were ages two and four when he went into prison. And he told reporters that he hadn't seen them or heard from them since. He had no idea of their whereabouts, but was seeking a way to rebuild whatever was left of his life. And when asked if he was angry about his life being stolen away from him, he responded, I've never carried bitterness around, and I'm not about to start now. I'm a believer that the justice system works. It just didn't work fast enough for me. You know, it's difficult to understand how someone like Richard Phillips could suffer for something that he didn't do and still hold on to not only forgiveness, but a sense of humor. Now, I don't want to speak presumptuously, but I suspect that while he was in prison, he made his peace with God. 
And I say this because his response is so unnatural. And I believe you see a small reflection of the person of Christ. You see, when someone sins against us, we get angry. And when that anger goes unresolved, it turns to bitterness. And it's one thing to say, you know, I was sinned against a long time ago. And although I was angry at the time, I can say I'm no longer bitter. But it's a whole different story when resolving anger while you're sitting in prison for a crime that you didn't commit and you're being punished every single day you wake up. How is it possible for him to respond the way that he did? Well, that's what I believe today's passage of Scripture speaks to. Last week we talked about how we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It also I, it, Last week I talked about, um, about a principle that Jesus shared with his disciples. He said when we do good, we need to do it in secret, but not wanting recognition from the world. And so it, instead of seeking recognition for ourselves, we instead seek to bring God glory. And if you remember, I, I talked about how difficult it is to do good and allow those good deeds to go unnoticed. Last week I concluded the message by preluding to something that we trade for man's recognition that is so much better. In today's study, we're going to talk about what that thing is. So if you open up your Bibles to John chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 9 through 27. We'll talk about that trade-off. Verse 9, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be, in, may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends." For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is my command, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If this If you were of the world, the world would love you as as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they did not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law, they hated me without cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. 
Father God, we open your word now and we just ask that, that your word would pour over our hearts and our minds, that all distractions might be lifted, Father, that you might actually bring things to heart, to our hearts and to our minds that um, you want to deal with us about. I pray that we would turn over all things to you and that, Father, your word would work its way into our hearts, that you would give us the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it, and, Father, we might bear fruit for you and bring you glory. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In truth, uh, we talked about a trade-off for the, uh, the things that, that we're going to do. But in truth, it's not just one thing that we're trading for. It's many. In John 14, Jesus promised to leave an inheritance behind for his disciples, his peace. He says, it's not as the world gives peace. My peace is a different kind of peace. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding and it knows no bounds. It's a peace that never leaves us and is often misunderstood. In addition to that peace, though, Jesus tells his disciples in today's passage that he's also leaving them three other things as well. His love, his joy, and hostility from the world. So as disciples, we do good in secret. And when we do good, we will suffer for it. As they say, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, in, in, in the first three inheritances, his love, his joy, and his peace... Jesus gives us the means to persist through hostility and endure. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Let me tell you, I love the kids on Wednesday nights, and I am passionate about making sure they were received in Jesus' name. Seeing their bright faces as they run in, and even when they come up and hug me and, 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 and say, Pastor John, what are we going to do tonight? That brings me joy. However, the love that I have for them and the love that I have for my three boys, it just doesn't compare. Jesus is saying here, the same way the Father loves the Son, that's how he loves us. Who could possibly understand the depths of love the Father has for the Son? We see a small picture of that in our love for our children, but it is not even remotely close to the love the Father has for the Son. No one else in Scripture had God pull back the clouds and audibly say, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. No, He bestowed that honor upon Jesus and Jesus only. Jesus went on to say, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, the English translation from the Greek is a bit awkward here, and so this passage can be uh, misleading, and, and it can, can take us away from Jesus' intended meaning. For example, much of the time we can read this passage and say, if you keep my commandments, then you will have my love. Or as long as you remain obedient, I will love you, but if you, know, you just through a moment become disobedient, you can kiss my love goodbye. But more accurately, Jesus is giving his disciples the means to be obedient. By commanding them to persevere in their faith, stay close to him, and be fruitful, Jesus was actually saying, if you stay in my love, you will be obedient. His love is not a result of our obedience. Rather, our obedience is a result of his love. We are not driven to obey Christ in order to fall under his good graces. No, we've been given his good graces. We are driven to obey Christ by a grateful heart for those graces and, and by being plucked out of the world 
having his love poured on us. Notice Jesus says, you will keep my commandments out of love, just as the Father gave me love and I kept his commandments. He tells his disciples, I love you as the Father has loved me, and just like I keep his commandments, because I love him, so you will do the same for me. Our obedience begins with God's love. God's love doesn't begin with our obedience. It's then that Jesus opens up his will and begins distributing out inheritances to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. To my disciples, I leave behind my joy. Isaiah 53, 3 prophesied that Jesus would be despised and forsaken of men, that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet isn't it interesting that although Jesus knew pain beyond any measure that we could possibly experience, he was and is the one whose life was marked by joy. The most joyful being in the universe was and still is Jesus Christ. And he bequeathed his joy to his disciples and left it behind as his legacy. We as his disciples may weep, we may endure pain, we may be crushed by afflictions that we encounter in this world, but in our heart of hearts exists a spirit of joy. Nothing more clearly identifies a believer than the joy that we inherit through the person of Christ. It's a joy that surpasses all endeavors and all understanding. Jesus' purpose that was that our joy would, would endure and that it would be made full. So I have to ask you, are you full of joy? Is your life marked by joy? When people think of you, do they think of someone joyful? Much of the time, our lives are marked by other things. We allow them to be marked by other things. Our accomplishments, our wealth, our popularity, our fame, our mistakes, our successes, and our failures. You know, I have a family member who will forever be known by the people around her as the teacher who slept with a student and went to prison. That's a dark mark. And you know what? She's never going to be able to escape that from the world. But I tell you, in those mistakes and failures, Christ gives us the inheritance of remaining joyful. Joy is ours because he gave it to us. We don't have to wait till Christmas to open it. We can enjoy it now. And when everyone wonders where we got it from, how it is that we can remain joyful even though terrible circumstances have befallen us, we have the privilege of showing them that they too have a present with their name on it under the tree. Look back in verse 10. Notice Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 10 says that. Now look through. Look at verse 12 through that context, through that lens. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. I want you to try to imagine a line of dominoes being set up and someone come and pushing, coming and pushing them down. Because that's what's happening here. The line of dominoes are falling. Love moves from the Father to the Son. The Son obeys the Father because of His love for Him. The Son loves us. And we obey Him because of our love for Him. Jesus is showing His disciples how the dominoes fall in the row. He says, if you keep my commandments, 
This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus pauses here in the explanation to break it down for them. He says in verses 14 and 15, You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I got it from him, and I'm giving it to you. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 19, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. This is made possible only by having God's vision bestowed upon us. He says, look down the line. Look back. It came from the Father. It came to me. It's coming to you. He tells them in verse 15, All things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is telling his disciples how the dominoes will fall down the road. He says to them that he's telling them this because they are no longer slaves but friends. He says a true friend is the one that will lay down his life for them. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's the exact example that Jesus gave us when he went to Calvary. Listen, I don't have a problem in the world with verses like verse 9 where Jesus says, Just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Now abide in my love. I'm pouring it on you. I don't have a problem with that. No, it's verses like verse 12 that bother me. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Okay, just as I have loved you. Whoa, wait, what a what did you say? Just as you have loved me, I'm supposed to love other people. How in the world are we supposed to do that? I mean, I can try to love you, but to love you as much as Jesus has loved me is beyond my natural ability. Jesus loved us. When not only were we unlovely, but we were unloving. He loved us when we nailed him to the cross. And we are called to model that kind of love. How do we do that? Well, it's no wonder Jesus talked about sending the Holy Spirit to help us so much. He says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that that fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The Apostle John, more than any other gospel writer, paid special emphasis to this point, that we didn't choose God, God chose us. When you want a chain reaction to occur with dominoes, you carefully select which dominoes will fall, and you carefully place them in a line. The chain reaction, it starts with God. He's the one that flicked over the first domino. It moved to Jesus and then to his disciples and down the line of disciples until it's fallen upon us. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He lined us up and he knocks us down with his love. His love fell to the Son. The Son's love fell to the disciples. His disciples upon their disciples. And that love fell to us and through us. His love falls upon others. But as Jesus explains, he gives us his love. He gives us his peace. He gives us his his joy. But he also bequeaths something else to us. Hatred from the world. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. There was never a greater injustice 
than God himself hanging upon the cross by the creation that he created. As he suffered persecution, Jesus is telling his disciples they will also suffer persecution. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So think about that for just a second. We are called to love others as he loves us. Why would someone hate us for that? I mean, is it a realistic image to say that someone would hate us for doing good? Nobody would ever say, you know, John drove me to the hospital when I was having a heart attack, and I hate him for it. Or, Bobby came and tried to pull me out of a burning building. He's such a creep. Can't stand him. No, that's not a realistic idea of what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said that people would hate us for doing good, but why? You know, the Jews didn't hate Jesus for healing people. Jews were rushing to Jesus. Oh, he's giving out free bread. They loved him for that. But see, the Jews hated Jesus, not because he did good works, but because he lit up the darkness. And I'm telling you, this is the greatest good that can be done. Listen to what he says in verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. John 3, 19 through 20, he says, this, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, when we're happy living our lives far away from God, enjoying sinful pleasures and profiting off of evil, the last thing we want is someone reminding us that what we're doing is wrong. Jesus was the light in the world. And he tells us, you are the light of the world. We are to shine light into the world, to shed light on darkness. When we see real-life hatred towards God's people because they speak out about how what culture is doing isn't what God commanded us to do in Scripture. God's people are hated for it. Now, understand, you might think this way, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not a pleasant conversation. When we speak out to what God is is doing and what what God wants from us, what God is of and what he isn't of. That is the greatest good that we can do for any person in the world. We shouldn't relish opportunities to correct someone in their sin. No, it should tear our hearts apart pointing out sin. But when we do that, that is the greatest good we can do. That is what we are called to do. And Jesus tells us the world will hate us for it. Jesus reminds his disciples a second time that a slave is not greater than his master. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Look at what he says next, though. He says, if you keep my word, they will keep yours also. Now, remember the dominoes in the line. God loves the son. The son obeys because of his love for, for the father. The son loves us. We will keep his commandments because of our love for him. We love others. And if they love us, they will keep our commandments. Wait, our commandments? What? What are you talking about, our commandments? Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We don't make up commandments. No, we simply teach others what we have been taught. 
And just as Jesus' disciples heard and repeated what Jesus said, just as how Jesus repeated what the Father had said, we are also called to repeat what we have been taught. This is the model of discipleship. Disciples who make more disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that the world will hate them because those in the world do not know God. And interestingly enough, Jesus tells them, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus stripped off their, their ignorance. He takes it away from them. And he shone light into the darkness. And rather than coming into the light, they recoiled back into darkness and they hated him for it. A perfect example would be the Apostle Paul. Or I should say Saul. He persecuted Christians because he hated them. The reason why is because he didn't know God. And when he, be, he knew God, he was transformed. Look at what, his, what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, he who hates me hates my father also. You see, hatred works the same way as love. Remember what Jesus said about future judgment? He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you came to visit me. I was in prison and you... Uh, uh, sorry, I was thirsty you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And... and as you've done to the least of these, you've also done to me. How we treat others is how we treat God. The same principle is, is true for how people treat us. The same is true for those who treat us with hatred. You're not hating me. You're hating Jesus. It reminds me whenever um, Israel wanted a king in the Old Testament. They wanted to be like other nations. And so they rejected Samuel as their judge. And God told Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me as their king. Jesus said, they hated me, they hated my father as well. And in verse 25, we see something incredible. Jesus says, but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Now the question is, was it God's will for them to hate Jesus? And I think a good answer for that, or at least a better explanation, is that God exists outside of time. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future right now. He's explaining through his prophets what he sees. And he uses what he sees to do his will. God called it like it was, knowing that they would do this, that they would hate Christ because they love darkness, knowing the world will hate us because we also shine light in the darkness. Jesus suffered for bringing light into the world. And Jesus told his disciples, if I hadn't brought light into the world, they would have never seen their darkness. It wasn't a situation where it would have been better for them to remain ignorant. I tell you, they head to destruction. And so Jesus suffered for doing good because of the Father's love for him and because of his love for us. Light has come into the world so that we could see our fallen condition. Light has come into the world so that we would show others that we are born into the slavery of sin. He came to set us free, and we crucified him for it. Don't think for a second that you would have any different experience with, with men that you come in contact with. Don't think for a second that you would have been any different than the men that nailed him to the cross. Je Jeremiah 79 says, uh, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? God understands it. He knew that he would have to suffer for us to be saved. And it's a sad truth 
But just as he suffered so we could be saved, so we must suffer so that others can be saved. No one should ever wish for suffering when doing good. But Jesus gave us his peace, his love, and his joy to help us overcome. But as he talks about in this passage, there is yet another inheritance to help us endure. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in verse 26 and 27, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and you will also te- he will testify and you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. We have the power of God that moved from the Father to the Son, that moved from the Son to his disciples, from his disciples to their disciples, and from their disciples to us. We have been called, we have been chosen to bear the cross for his namesake so that others might enjoy the wonderful gift of salvation and intimacy with Christ. We are bearers of good news in troubled times. We carry the gospel message to a world of sinners. And we get the privilege of introducing others to a God of love. For one sinner to come to repentance, all the suffering in the world was worth it. That's the way the Father saw it when he gave us his Son. That's the way the Son saw it when he suffered on the cross for us. And that's the way we must see it too. One quick story before we close. I heard a story about a man who would walk around his apartment complex sharing the gospel. And one day he walked up on two crack addicts and he started to share the good news of salvation with them. And one of those addicts turned and they just punched him right in the face, knocking him to the ground. And as the man looked up bleeding from the ground, he looked up and he said, Well, Jesus died for me. I guess I can bleed for you. And they went away. And he went away. But the next day, one of those addicts came and knocked on his door and asked what he meant. And and through talking with this man, this former addict surrendered his life to the Lord. Suffering is not what we signed up for. But with godly vision, looking down the rows of dominoes set up to fall, all that suffering has a purpose. Let us not give up on our purpose because we're afraid to suffer. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.